Welcome to the High Motor Podcast. Thank you for dropping by. Andrew Dowdy here on the Hero Sports Podcast Network with episode number three of the High Motor Podcast. And you can find episodes one and two on iTunes, Spreaker, Spotify, Overcast, all those podcast apps. You can hear Tim Tebow on there. You can hear uh, Teddy Greenstein on the Chicago Tribune, Ross Dellinger of Sports Illustrated, and some others on those podcasts. And coming up on this podcast, you're going to hear Ben Bolch of the Los Angeles Times. We'll talk about some UCLA basketball, a little bit of Pac-12, and Steffi Sorensen of ESPN. Hey, a quick thanks to all of you who've listened to the first couple episodes. Uh, really no way to overstate this. Been getting some big listen numbers lately. Um, honestly, ones that I wasn't expecting. So so really a sincere appreciation to Everyone who has been tuning into the High Motor Podcast, you can find the podcast on Twitter at High Motor Pod, and you can find me, Andrew Dowdy, on Twitter at a Dowdy88. Today, uh, today we're actually in Nashville, back on the road. Uh, great to be back on the road. Did Chicago last weekend for a wedding, had a blast. Uh, Nashville this week, and then we're going to try moving uh, even a little bit farther south, get some warm weather, and today. Doing some basketball. We're doing some basketball here on the High Motor Podcast. First, it's going to be Ben Bolch, UCLA beat writer for the Los Angeles Times and author of 100 Things UCLA Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Hey, Ben, thanks for the time today. What's the feedback been like for that book? I think it was released in November, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, So far, so good. Um, I think uh, people seem to like the the breadth of it and, um, you know, all the the heavy hitters are are involved, but I also found some unique storylines to put in there, um, such as like an eight-overtime soccer game and uh, an amazing alumni game that they had at Pauley Pavilion between uh, North Carolina and UCLA where Dean Smith went against head-to-head with John Wooden. So 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 a lot of fun, like kind of uh, below-the-radar stuff in addition to all the uh, well-known stuff. Very cool. So... Back in December, uh, I was on December 19th, that was the the night that UCLA basketball was throttled by Cincinnati on the road, you tweeted a quote from Steve Alford. Uh, the quote was, if you lose, you get in the gym on your day off and you figure things out. Not wait and get in the gym when we meet with you. You've got to do things as a player to figure things out. It's not an AAU game where you're going to get beat and you play again at night. So a couple things on that. First of all, what was your feeling when he said that at the time? Again, this was December 19th, a couple weeks before he was fired. Did, did it feel like a boiling point and that he was actually, you know, straight up blaming the players? Yeah, that was that was 100% the sense I got. Basically saying that they're not doing what they need to improve uh, when they're not, when they're not, you know, under my leadership. Um, and it was, it was, he was very overt about it. There was nothing thinly veiled about what he was saying at all. He was basically saying... These guys are not tough enough, don't have the desire to go into the gym and, and work on their deficiencies, you know, when I'm not standing right next to them. Um, and, you know, the, the players, when, when I asked them about it, to their credit, uh, you know, I pretty much did, did the right PR spin of, of not getting upset publicly. But I, I, know, I have to imagine, you know, at the very least, they were, they were stung by what he said. Uh, if not, if not overtly angered, and I can't say for certain that this precipitated his his dismissal, but it it certainly didn't help his cause uh, amid that four game losing streak that ultimately cost him his job. 
Yeah, and then two days later, like I said, the tweet, that was on December 19th after the loss to Cincinnati. And two days later, you wrote a story on LATimes.com. The headline was, Discontent with the UCLA Basketball Program Hits Social Media with the Bulk of It from Alumni. And in that article, you talked about some criticism, uh, some public criticism from former player Derek Martin. Uh, You also talked to uh, former Wooden player Andy Hill. And then you noted that seven players whom you contacted declined to comment, didn't return requests. And, you know, most former players at UCLA, really any program, they don't take public criticism lightly, as as you know, and as you noted there. You know, but when this happened, it kind of often feels like, an, oh boy, now, now you've lost these guys. Around the program, did it, did it really feel like when that happened, did it feel like something was very wrong? Yeah, it felt like kind of a snowball effect, you know, it, playing poorly he came out and basically blamed his players and then and then the alumni came in and weighed in and said this is not what we uh accept can accept from ucla basketball and then at that point it kind of felt like they were in a crisis setting and and very ripe for for something to happen and then we reached the trigger point when they had the uh, 15 point home loss to liberty uh a couple days after christmas and it was the, it was pretty much the perfect storm. Uh, you know, UCLA's not known for, for making in-season changes. This was the first one it ever made in 100 years of UCLA basketball. But at that point, they basically checked pretty much every box that they needed to, that a change needed to be made uh, between, you know, losing games, the coach openly blaming players, and the alumni coming out and basically saying, we're not going to stand for this. So um, Dan Guerrero, the athletic director, his hand – was forced, and uh, he did not sit by and say, no, we're going to let the season play out. He, he made the move, and uh, and now we're, we're seeing uh, what what the results of that are. You mentioned Dan Guerrero. I mean, he's been there since I think it was 2002, mid-year 2002, that he took over, and right away he fired uh, football coach Bob Toledo. Not long after, he fired Steve Lavin. So in 17 years now, from my count, I think he's preparing to hire his seventh new head coach in football or men's basketball, so basically one every you know two two and a half years, and it's it's not often these days that we see ads get to make that many hires. Is there any sense in UCLA circles that that Guerrero might be nearing his last chance or chances at finding coaches who can reliably compete, and whether that's for conference or national titles, basically meet expectations because clearly expectations are not being met. So do you think that Guerrero is kind of nearing that last chance? Well, he's, I mean, let's be very honest about what the, the role of the UCLA athletic director is. Um, you know, obviously, you know, they want to win at the highest levels in the major sports, football, men's basketball, um, which they've, you know, had a, some mixed success, but largely not achieved the results they wanted to, you know, over those 17 years. But, you know, UC system puts a, pri- a priority on uh, a balanced budgets and, and improving facilities and kind of being above board and everything they do. And I think I think on those fronts, Dan Guerrero's tenure has been considered pretty much a smashing success if you look at where the athletic department budget was when he took over versus now where they're flush with cast. They've got that record Under Armour deal. Um, and I know a lot of the fans uh, kind of roll their eyes at these things, but I think Dan Guerrero is still in, in really good standing uh, as far as his bosses are concerned. And, and, and frankly, his, his contract uh, ends December 2019, so he may, he may not be uh, around much longer, but of his own choosing, if he, if he decides to retire, he has not announced his 
intentions. Uh, but I think on the whole, um, you know, he's done a fairly good job. Now, I will say that the landing Chip Kelly came about a little bit differently because they put together that uh, uh, search committee that included uh, Casey Wasserman, the, the mega donor, uh, an alum, a, a, as well as Troy Aikman, obviously the, the NFL Hall of Famer. So they, they, they've kind of taken a new approach with their big hires, and they're doing a similar thing with this basketball search by putting Bob Myers, the uh, Golden State general manager who was on the 95 national championship team at UCLA, uh, kind of kind of as the, the quote-unquote basketball expert uh, on this panel. Uh, so so they, to his credit, they, they have, I think, identified – uh, that they need, that he needs some help in, in these heavy big decisions because he has stumbled some in the past. So we'll see if they can land uh, a Chip Kelly equivalent in basketball as a result of this new strategy. So you mentioned Chip Kelly, and he—I know you said that the search was a little bit different, but he still kind of fits in this, um, you know, mold. I don't know how much I want to use that word of of coaches who who've been around before. I mean, Chip Kelly, Steve Alford, uh, Jim Mora, Ben Howland, You know, they've all been head coaches elsewhere. They've all been in their profession for. Um, you know, two, three decades in some cases, do you see, and I'm not sure how much what you just said plays into this with a different process, but do you see another coach like that, or could you see them going in a different direction? Well, I, I would think in their ideal world, they would they would be able to get somebody um, who has that proven track record and still has some mileage left on the odometer. You know, I, I don't think somebody like you know, even taking away their allegiance to where they are, but like a Roy Williams or a Coach K uh, is a realistic type thing. You know, we're, we're talking about somebody more like uh, Tony Bennett or, uh, or, or, or you know, in a dream scenario for UCLA, uh, Billy Donovan. Somebody, somebody who's won at the highest levels uh, but still is kind of, you know, mid-career, so to speak, and they can really – uh, you know, have that, you know, 10 to 15 year run that, that UCLA would want from somebody. Now, you know, following that, I don't think they're averse to getting, you know, an up and coming type guy like a Kevin Keats at North Carolina State. But I think in their ideal world, I think they want to be able to sell it that we've got a guy who's already won and, and now he's just going to, you know, he's, already, he's just going to hit the ground running with us and resume this incredible success he's already had. Uh, and already reinvigorate the fan base from day one as opposed to somebody who needs to come and improve themselves. Ben, in your opinion, just you know, very bluntly, how, how good do you think that this job is? You're, you're mentioning, I know you said you're not mentioning you know, those top, top names in college basketball, but you're still mentioning some pretty heavy hitters in college basketball. Um, judging from that, it seems like you still think this is a very, very good, you know, maybe second-tier job wherever you want to tier it. So how good do you think this job really is? Yeah, I think it's it's probably the, the national media per, uh, perception on, on what it is, I think, might be a little bit uh, low, uh, because now, let's face it, they, they, they are opening the wallet for Chip Kelly, and his average deal is $4.33 million, uh, a year. They've got top-notch facilities. Um, you know, everybody's always going to mention the, the specter of John Wooden hanging over the basketball program, but I think that the perceptions of what the, the fans want at UCLA are a little bit... Uh, don't really jive with, with reality. Uh, I, I think that the, the real expectation is NCAA tournament every year, um, you know, get in the Final Four every two to three, or at least compete for the Final Four every two to three years, uh, and, you know, at least, you know, win a national championship every decade. Um, and, I, and I think given the resources UCLA has and, and the built-in recruiting base here, I don't think that's really uh, that crazy of an expectation. But, 
you know, let's take it somebody like Tony Bennett in Virginia. I think he makes about two point four or five million uh, a year. UCLA could double his salary. So I, I think that there is, you know, a little bit of a misperception uh, that maybe UCLA is not quite the job that, that, I, that frankly, I think it is and should be and, and can be. Um, if they if they line it up with the right candidate. So you talked a lot about like you mentioned Dan Guerrero, you know what he's done financially for for UCLA athletics, and you talk about UCLA facilities there. Where do you think on a, a Pac-12 level that plays into? I mean, the Pac-12's um, issues ha- have been well documented. Like John Canzano up at the Oregonian did a really you know, a good series. I think it was in the fall of kind of profiling you know the things that have gone wrong there, postseason financial issues, things like that, and, and whether you know, what you think of the scale of those. Uh, regardless, do you think that those those issues and the publicity of those issues has any impact on a coaching search like this? No, I don't think so. In fact, I, I, you know, you could flip that and say that somebody. Uh, would look at that and say, well, yeah, the Pac-12 is a mess. I can come in and dominate from day one because, you know, it's a, it's a conference that on the basketball side is kind of in upheaval between, you know, the FBI investigations going on uh, at Arizona and USC. Uh, and, you know, let's, let's, let's face it, not, not a whole lot of uh, elite top-level coaches uh, up and down the conference. So, you know, somebody like Tony Bennett, who's, who's, you know, on a yearly basis, even though he's winning ACC titles, will always be considered, you know, a, a second-class citizen compared to North Carolina and Duke. If he comes to UCLA, you know, he could he could kind of be the class of the conference from day one. Um, so, so I think that that's another selling point where people say, "Oh, the Pac-12 is a mess," but somebody could say, "Well, that's gonna that's gonna open the door for me to come in." I kind of take over. Hey, one thing before I let you go here. Do you do you have a prediction of who they're going to hire? I mean, if you do, are you willing to say who you think it could be? Well, I mean, I, I can't really gauge the, the interest level uh, of the potential candidates. Like, I, I mentioned Tony Bennett I think he would just be tremendous on, on every front. And if I was UCLA, I would go all in on Tony Bennett and, and Billy Donovan as well. Uh, but, you know, there, there's tons of, of excellent second-tier candidates, you know, Chris Mack would be good. Uh, Jamie Dixon, who, who you know considered coming here at one point, but you know the, the Ben Hallen connection, uh, thought it would, thought it would be you know you know maybe a little bit too painful. Buzz Williams would be good. Um, so you know there's probably a list of, of, of five to ten really really good coaches who I think would be a huge upgrade if, even if they weren't able to land at home run hire. So I think UCLA is actually in a really good spot here to land somebody. Uh, that's really going to get this uh, trajectory pointed uh, upward very quickly. All right, that's Ben Bolch from the Los Angeles Times. You can find him on Twitter at L-A-T-B Bolch, B-O-L-C-H. And then in uh, his Twitter bio, there is a link to that book. And I think you also have a pinned tweet atop the one of the book we were just talking about. Hey, Ben, thanks for the time today. Uh, thanks for the insight on uh, UCLA, and I hope you have a great week. Thank you so much. So barring a run in the Pac-12 tourney, honestly, which is entirely possible given the conference's lack of top teams, UCLA is probably going to miss the tournament. Second time in four years. Actually, fourth time going back eight, nine, ten years. <clears throat> Eleven years after back-to-back Final Four appearances for the Bruins, we're sitting here talking about UCLA missing the tournament 40% of the time. And so as of Monday... The Bruins' resume, it's just horrendous. I mean, they're they are not one of the roughly 80 teams that have a quadrant one win. So 80 teams 
have a quadrant one win. They are 0-5 in those games. And they have, and this is really staggering for a high major program, especially one that, like I said, came out back-to-back Final Four appearances only a decade ago. They have one total win in both quadrants one and two. So they're a combined one and six in those first two quadrants. For those of you who don't follow this that closely, the top teams on college basketball, top resumes, they have four, five Q1 wins. About 40 teams or so have two, at least two quadrant one wins. Like, for example, staying in the Pac-12, even though Arizona State's, their net completely sucks. I mean, it's in the 80s. The Sun Devils actually have four quadrant one wins. Uh, though, looking at Arizona State's resume, one of those uh, supposedly top-tier wins that we call them, it's a road win over Georgia. So as of Monday, Georgia was net 70, which isn't horrible, but it's not great. But that game still falls in quadrant one because road wins up to net 75. Remember, all those road wins up to net 75 are in quadrant one, meaning they have the same weight as a home win over, for example, uh, top-ranked Virginia. So like the selection committee, they're using other metrics to, to build the 68-team field, and they really drill down there, but like, what are we doing here? A road win over Georgia is the same weight as a home win over a Virginia, over a Tennessee, a Michigan? I mean, you tell me that you beat Tennessee at home, and it's in the same quadrant as a road win over Georgia. The Georgia team that got blasted by Georgia State, they lost by 24 points to Georgia State. They lost to Tennessee by almost 50. So this this Georgia team that lost to Tennessee by 46 points, they're given the same weight as a home team as Tennessee is. I mean, I could go so many places with my issues with this, with the net, and I'm going to talk about those a little bit. Uh, my next guest, Steffi Sorensen, she's going to hop on in a second. So I don't want to climb too far down the hole here, but I don't understand why the NCAA thinks our brains can't handle five quadrants or like six or seven or eight. If you have So if you have time today or, or whenever before Selection Sunday, two months from now, pull up the info on those NCAA team sheets, uh, the quadrant system. I've written about it a lot. Uh, like, for example, hop on Google, type in NCAA tournament sheets are a little different this season. NCAA tournament sheets are a little different this season. Type that into Google. That'll lead you to my quick breakdown of the team sheets, of that process. And I kind of break down why there are so many things wrong with that. So the committee uses all these complex metrics and algorithms, yet they refuse to break up the quadrants a little bit more. The quadrant system is greatly improved upon last year when they're using the archaic RPI to do it, but they still refuse to do more than four quadrants. Why are we not rewarding these top wins more? Like, for example, on Monday night, Syracuse beat Duke at Cameron Indoor on Monday night. Overtime, you know, Duke was without Reddish. Uh, they were without Trey Jones. But Syracuse still won that game, right? It's, st- it's still a-, a great win on their team sheet. That's going to be a quadrant one win for the entire season. Uh, games do move in and out of quadrants based upon net rankings. But that game, a road win at Duke, is always easily going to stay in that top 75 net road win quadrant one, as it should be. And that win, according to the NCAA, or let's take, for example, Iowa State's complete demolition of Kansas and Ames a couple weeks ago. They beat Kansas by almost 20 points, completely dominated them the entire game. Those wins are considered the same. They have the same worth as a road win over Georgia, as a road win over St. Louis, 
uh, Hofstra, with all due respect to Hofstra, Justin Wright Foreman, absolute stud if you haven't watched Hofstra hoops the last couple of years. This guy is incredible. With all due respect to Hofstra, winning at Hofstra, not really the same as beating Kansas by 20 or winning at Cameron Indoor. I don't understand where we got this arbitrary number of quadrants. I mean, it's like the college football playoff committee pointing to top 25 wins. They they actually use that, top 25 wins, saying, well, this team had three top 25 wins. All right, why are we doing top 25? Because back a billion years ago, the AP decided to reveal the top 25 teams. So if you're going to use this quadrant system, which I do think is smart. I think that when they introduced that, it was a great upgrade. It gave fans an idea of where all these wins sat. I think it's a good way to weigh those games. Why are we not going to at least five or six quadrants and truly reward those great wins? Okay, as I said, we're joined by Stephanie Sorensen of ESPN. Uh, she's one of the few people on the planet who actually knew what Florida Gulf Coast was before we all knew what Florida Gulf Coast was, right? Very true. I was, I was one of the OGs there, okay? so You were one of the, the Division Two OGs, right? Yeah, it was um, right before we were set to go to Division One, And I took a trip down there, and all the palm trees, the water, I was like, where do I sign? So it was awesome, and I, you know, I spent a year there where we were actually undefeated until the national championship game, where we lost. Not fun, but it was probably the most basketball knowledge I learned my entire career. And then, then you. Tra- so this is what I want to talk with you about. Then you transferred, so you kind of have an, an experienced perspective on transfer. You play at three different schools, um, landed at yeah. Florida. That was the third one, and that was you did all this before. Uh, the current system, the current waiver system before the transfer portal, obviously. And that transfer portal is getting a lot of attention lately. It honestly, to me, it feels like fantasy football. It feels like you're cruising the waiver wire for for a mid-season pickup. And for you, for somebody who's gone through the transfer process, how do you see something like this transfer portal completely altering college sports? Can it really be overstated how big of an impact this is going to have? couple points. I feel like um, I'm probably the worst person to talk to in terms of, you know, transfers because I played at three different schools, three different levels. Um, so I think that makes me have a greater appreciation for all different types of schools, whether it be D2, junior college, and then like a mega powerhouse like I went to at Florida. Um, my, my stance is that I'm for players' pursuit of happiness. And I was not happy when I was at FGCU. Like, great coaching staff, great teammates just wasn't the right spot for me. So I didn't want to sit out because I was, you know, I was taking visits to other schools. But I was like, I don't, I'm not going to sit out for a year. I'm going to go JUCO. Right. And then I, you know, experienced junior college where we had Wendy's for pregame, where we bust everywhere. And it just gives you an appreciation for every, you know, all the charter flights when I got to Florida and all the gear, all that stuff. So when I got to U.S., it was just a whole other experience. So now with the transfer portal, as you would say, it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. Um, but I, I don't have a problem with it. I only have a problem with people transferring. If you leave mid-year, then I don't respect you. Otherwise, if you don't, if you don't like where you're at and you want to go somewhere else, go. No problem. So, why do coaches get to leave, take other jobs in life? Why do we, you know, if you want to take a promotion and go somewhere else, you leave, you take it. So I think there's this, like, stigma on players who aren't happy, and so they leave, and then all of a sudden, like, everyone kind of shits on them, and I'm like, 
you know, maybe they're just not happy. You don't know the backstory. So go, go, go play somewhere else. Like, you want to be the best version of yourself. And if that's somewhere else, I'm all for it. And maybe that's not popular to say, but I went to three schools. So, like, who am I to judge, you know? So you, so you mentioned kind of not knowing, and I always wonder about that. Like, for example, you mentioned like when a coach leaves, and a lot of time when a coach will take a different different job, uh, a lot of people will be like, why are you taking that job? Well, we don't, we don't know. We don't know what the family dynamics are. We don't know why he feels comfortable, he or she feels comfortable, wherever. And one of the situations that I think that that kind of leads to right now, that's a big talking point, is Justin Fields going from, from Georgia to Ohio State and specifically about that. So recently his lawyer, um, he's the one who's trying to earn media eligibility for uh, Justin. He said that there's more to the waiver um, request than that incident at Georgia in which a baseball player uh, called Fields a racial slur from the stands and was ultimately dismissed. And I- I've said my take on it. I think that we need to know kind of what the more to the story is because this NCAA decision on whether or not they grant him eligibility or not, it's going to set – pretty enormous precedent you know whether or not he gets to play or not and i think that i think that we need that transparency transparency excuse me to kind of ensure that the ncaa can't just make these decisions without any accountability they can't just do it on a case-by-case basis without any real defined process so where do you fall on that like if you were if you were in a situation like fields in which you're transferring after a highly publicized incident like like this racial slur incident at georgia would you want your quote-unquote whole story you know whatever that may be would you want everything made public that's a great question i think yeah i mean I, i'm i'm all for transparency and it's funny that you mentioned that because i was doing a mississippi state game and there was a player that transferred in from yukon and she she kind of got granted eligibility right away um or, there was some sort of dispute if she was going to be eligible or not and there was a kid at Notre dame that got granted eligibility right away and when you asked, I don't think there's a clear answer from people. And I'm, and I'm not sure if there was a clear answer that they would give it because they're like, well, if we tell you why, then, you know, we don't want necessarily everyone to just get uh, our opponents to have people eligible right away. This is an advantage. So I think if we're going to allow players to just go to different schools and be eligible right away, let them tell, tell their whole side, and then NCAA needs to come out and say, this is why we granted them that. You know, because otherwise it's kind of mysterious and it doesn't seem fair in a lot of situations. Um, so I think that's kind of my stance. I'm for transparency, totally, 100%. Like, let's communicate. And I think there's a, there's not enough of that in sports, and it can be kind of shady. So let's open it up. Let's everyone share um, what you want to hear. And I think like when law, um, you know, lawyers and all that get involved, that's when I feel like. Um, all about shaping an image and, and all that and so then I think the transparency gets lost do you agree yeah I completely agree and, and like part of me kind of wants to I, I try to give the NCA the benefit of the doubt because they aren't like this this evil conglomerate that I think everyone wants to think they are yes they make a lot of questionable decisions and yes I criticize them for a lot of things but it's not just you know a bunch of, of bad-spirited people in this building in Indianapolis trying to see how they can screw over student-athletes so I, I do want to give them the benefit of the doubt and maybe there is a reason, like you mentioned, like when you're talking about the, the transfer from UConn, maybe there is an actual reason behind that, but it'd be great to actually know that reason, maybe know what they're actually thinking to help somebody that's thinking, well, maybe I want to transfer, but I don't know if I'm going to be eligible. How did they rule in this case? Is it similar to mine? Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and then if there's a player who 
um, transfers from one school to the next and has to sit out. And they, they were trying to, you know, get granted immediate eligibility. And maybe they had an interesting story, but then the NCAA was like, no. And so, and then you're like, okay, well then what, who gets immediate eligibility? Are we opening the floodgates for players to just basically be like free agency? Because that's how it's kind of become. Right. Um, in the off season, it's just like, okay, so who's going where? And, you know, coaches do complain about it, but I think that coaches also take full advantage of it. Right. There's plenty of transfers on teams now, and players leave, and then coaches, you know, it's just like, just have to go through the list of who's transferring, and it's a whole different uh, ballgame now. It is like free agency. It's like, who can we get in the offseason? Right. So speaking of the NCAA, speaking of transparency, before you hopped on, I was uh, I was chatting about the new net ranking for men's basketball, the quadrant system. A couple things that I wanted to ask you regarding that. So number one, the NCAA, they've, they've touted this new uh, net, the NCAA evaluation tool, the full name for it, this new net algorithm, that it's much better than the old RPI, yet – they're still using the RPI for women's basketball. I don't, I don't expect you to have this answer, but I still want to ask you, why are they touting this net, but then not just using the algorithm for women's basketball too? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm almost missing something. If, if they, for some yeah. reason, have this great algorithm that's going to solve all of our problems, why are we not applying it to everything? That's a good, it's a good point. I don't know why. It's, it's almost kind of backwards where – Everyone else is playing quarters except for men's college basketball. They're still playing half. Right. So that's backwards. And then for our game and the women's college basketball game, you know, we're still using RPI. It's totally subjective. And, you know, with the net rate rankings and all of that, it's supposed to eliminate that. And there's been some, obviously, a lot of uh, frustration and criticism with that. So, you know, I don't know the solution. I really don't. I mean, I'm open to ideas. You got some ideas? <laughs> I have no idea. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm trying to figure out. And I guess that's kind of my second question for you here. Yeah. Because like, regarding the RPI, we all had that formula. I mean, it was a simple three-part formula that like a fourth grader could calculate. And the net isn't. Like, it's it's an algorithm that I'm not a mathematician. I don't think that you are either. Neither of us would probably understand it if we actually saw it. But there are people that can understand it at schools. And the NCA is refusing to release it. You know, I've asked them for it repeatedly. Um, they've been really polite in their refusal, but they've still refused it, and they're not even releasing it to schools. So it's not that they're not releasing it to the media. They're not even releasing it to the member institutions. And now we're sitting here, what, eight, nine weeks out from Selection Sunday, and I feel yeah. like nobody is kind of grasping how absurd this is that they're not releasing an algorithm that's going to play a huge, huge role in selecting the men's field. Like, are you are you surprised? And I talked about trying to give the NCAA the benefit of the doubt in most cases, but I, I don't see how you can do that here. So are you are you surprised they're not releasing it, or were you kind of expecting this to happen, that they wouldn't uh, want to based upon what we talked about with transfers? Yeah. I, I wasn't necessarily surprised. I think that they'll let it ride for a year and then probably reevaluate. Maybe there's some tweaking that they can do. Um, right now, but I think that they're just going to um, see how it goes through Selection Sunday and all that. And just to kind of, in terms of parallels, like with the college football and how they choose, do we really know? <laughs> we don't. Like right. what they're looking right. for. And we've heard so many different takes on it. It's like, but, but do we really know what they're basing it off of? And I feel like now with the net rankings, it's like, well, 
do we really, you know, we don't know. Obviously, you've asked the NCAA for more transparency, and, and you haven't gotten that. And I just feel like that's kind of where we are. Yeah, and that's a good point with football. And and when you if you consider how I personally think that the playoff committee has gotten it right every year, I'm not sure where you stand on that. So I don't have as big of a problem with that because I've you know looking at the metrics and everything, I think they've gotten the teams right. But I mean that's a four team field. We're talking about a 68 team field, so that's what 15 times more teams. And we're making this field based upon how based upon metrics that an algorithm that nobody understands. Do you think so? When you say that you think they're going to give it a one year trial, why not just you know, implement that last year kind of quietly, not tell anybody that they're doing it and see run like a mock selection and see how it work out. So I guess, are you surprised that they're doing this so publicly and then kind of like holding half of their cards over here saying, you know what, I don't know if this is going to work. I think that they're, you know, with technology and, and the way that we can um, use that to our advantage. And because of in years past, a lot of the uproars and who gets left out, who's been on the bubble, this was their solution to kind of eliminate that and make it more like, as you mentioned, an algorithm. Like, there's no arguing, like, this is what the algorithm says. Um, so I just, I, I think that that's what they chose to do. They're going to stick with it and then reevaluate after a year. And I, I, I read a couple things about Jay Billis, who is a hawk on the NCAA. So uh, he said some similar things, and he's been very critical of it as well. So I, I just think that, you know, maybe if, if people continue to be more outspoken about it and, and aren't happy with it, you know, maybe things will change and maybe there will be um, a little bit more transparency with it of what's really, what's the algorithm and how are you guys making these decisions and why is this person here if they've got Squadron 1 win and, and all that. So we'll see. Uh, okay, one more thing before we shift gears here to something a little bit more random. You, I noticed that you've tweeted about like Maria Taylor before, uh, your ESPN college, obviously from College Game Day. Uh, for those living on the moon, Maria, she was on the other end of the um, Nick Saban quit asking outburst last season. So I want to ask you, how do you prepare yourself to handle something unexpected like that? I mean, do you just always assume that it's coming so you're not off guard? I think it's different with basketball. Um, you know, I did two years of college football. And when, you, when you're on the field and you're jogging over to a coach at halftime, this is kind of why I steered away from college football because it almost feels like you're a burden to them. And I love the game so much. I love it as a fan. I love the, you know, the players and what comes with it. I mean, I grew up watching college football. And so that's why I, I, I veered off the path of college football because and then I watched Maria, and she's got to jog towards Saban. And she's got to ask those tough questions. And you're on the front line. And you don't know the backstory because maybe she thought something else was, she wanted to ask something else. And maybe everyone in, in the truck said, this is what you have to ask. She's on the front line. Mm-hmm. And then she's the one that takes that. So um, in terms of do I prepare myself, I think that you kind of, <clears throat> you don't really know what you're going to get. So that's the fun part of it is it kind of keeps you off balance. And I just think the importance is just being composed. And I think that's what we saw with Maria and Nick where she, you know, she handled like a grown woman as you'd expect her to. Mm-hmm. And with basketball, I, I just feel like, you know, coaches, you build relationships. And so if you feel like you can ask a question and, uh, and they'll, they'll just answer. So it's just different in football. It's, it's a totally different ball game, man. I'm telling you, like, you know, it just was – it was not as fun as I thought it would be. And I, I know that's probably not 
most people wouldn't expect that. It's a dream job for a lot of people, but for me, it just, it was different, and I didn't necessarily like it. So, you know, I just chose to move away from college football. When you say you didn't necessarily like it, um, it were yeah. you going into it thinking that you would like it, and there was, like, a particular incident or a series of incidents that changed, or is it more just that feeling of, you know, like you said, running over to a coach when, honestly, Nick Saban didn't want to talk to Maria that, that day. I don't, I don't know how many coaches are like, oh, where's, where's the ESPN reporter? Can I talk to them before I go into, into the yeah. locker room? And that's not to diminish what, what you do, but that's just the reality of it. So has there been like a, a specific thing that kind of steered you away from that or, or steered you toward basketball more? Um, if I'm being completely honest, I think it's the way that the role is perceived. And I'm somebody who has spent my entire life as an athlete, was a professional athlete, was in the trenches at a Power 5 school, and when you become a quote-unquote sideline reporter for football, I feel like they kind of, it's not a dumbed-down role, because, don't, I mean, think about all the great reporters that we have, but the perception of the role is just different, and your expectations are different, and for me, I wasn't comfortable with that, um, I, didn't, I didn't like that where I actually had some good moments with coaches who knew that I was an athlete and they were, and they respected that. Um, it was just different. It's a different role. And I was like, you know, I didn't spend all these years as an athlete to be looked at differently because I'm a sideline reporter holding a Fox mic. Do you know what I mean? And that's just the honest shirt. So when I got to basketball, it was totally different because that's kind of my bread and butter. That's what I played. And I was much more comfortable doing basketball. So, and it, I love college football. It was not the right avenue for me. I just, I never really felt comfortable with it. Yeah, it's a really interesting perspective. And I, I think that it, 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 I think there are a lot I of... I think a lot of people will admit that, to be honest. Yeah, and I, but, think, I think, think a lot of people will admit that like for example, when I was a kid, I wanted to work in college athletics. I grew up, you know, I got a degree, and I wanted to do that. And then when I started doing that, it, it's not. It wasn't what I seemed like. I feel like even the closer I got to it, maybe like the farther away I actually was in a weird way. And I think that you don't really understand until you're you're in it. And I have never been a sideline reporter, but I think it's an interesting perspective how how you you have this this passion for college football, but once you actually you're like you're literally in it it completely changes yeah. your perspective well and as a female um and i never played college football per se mm -hmm. and so i'm not allowed to necessarily have an opinion on college football because right. i didn't play but there are grown men who can give their opinion who never played right. so that was my problem and i'm like I've, I've been an athlete my whole life this person hasn't but they can say and comment on, you know, the 3-4 defense or whatever they're running. Uh, so, what gives? I just didn't like it. I didn't, you know, I think it's changing. I think Laura Rutledge has been, like, a huge, and Maria Taylor, they've been two really strong pieces for college football because people respect them, and they can give their opinion, and I think that people listen. I think that's kind of been a turning point for especially women in college football because it's not always been like that. Yeah, Laura does does a pretty remarkable job Love yeah all right before we uh before we head out here i saw another one of your tweets on this was maybe like two or three weeks ago <laughs> you don't like the dave yeah. matthews band right i don't i i agree i don't it's not like i think that they're bad um i just don't get the the overwhelming cult-like love for them and obviously everybody's entitled to their own opinion we just happen to fall in the minority that that don't get it so using 
that string. I, I want to have some fun, and you agreed to this before, and you prepared a few things, so I think people will maybe okay. enjoy this. So we're both in the minority on the non-Dave Matthews folks. Let's see how deep of a minority we can dig ourselves into. So we're going to start small. Um, I don't think not being a Dave Matthews fan is that outrageous. It's a minority, but I don't think it's that outlandish. So here's uh, my counter to your Dave Matthews, and then maybe we'll escalate things. So we'll see how deep okay. we can get on our uh, our contrarian side. So my counter to you, Dave Matthews, uh, short story. The first time I went to New York, you know, whatever, four or five years ago, we took the Statue of Liberty ferry, right? Like the one that takes you from lower Manhattan, drops you off at the Statue of Liberty. You get off, walk around, get back on, dropped off at Ellis Island, get off, walk around, get back on, right? So we took the ferry to the Statue of Liberty, but we didn't get off. I didn't want to see the Statue of Liberty. I don't care about seeing the Statue of Liberty. Wow. Why didn't you get off the, why didn't you want to see it? I think seeing it from afar is far more unique. For example, we got off at Ellis Island to take pictures of the Statue of Liberty. Okay. Did I, I go too I have, deep I have into to the tell hole? You, I didn't get off the ferry either. Okay, I'll raise you this. I don't like Game of Thrones. I could not agree more. Hey, actually, actually, quickly, for, for those of you who are listening, hit us up on Twitter when you're listening to this, um, at High Motor Pod and at Steffi Sorensen. Uh, S-T-E-F-F-I-S-O-R-E-N-S-E-N. Uh, hit us up with your contrarian side. Like, how deep of a hole can you dig yourself while you're listening to this? I'm going to clump right, keep going. I'm gonna clump a few together because I feel like they kind of fall in the same bucket. So I'm going to see your Game of Thrones, and I'm going to raise you. I have never seen Hoosiers, Rudy, or Rocky. Wow. Well, I think that Harry Potter is overrated. I think that we're agreeing too much here. <laughs> we are agreeing. I loved the Harry Potter books growing up. I saw the first few movies, and I don't understand it whatsoever. So I'm going to see your Harry Potter. I don't like the city of Rome. It's one of the most unpleasant cities I've ever visited. Hmm. Not bad. I don't like dogs. And we were agreeing so much. You don't like dogs either? No, I do. I love them. I, well, I don't. I'm not, a, I'm not a fan. I've never had an animal. Let me see your dogs. I hate jeans. I think that they're extremely uncomfortable. If I worked in an office, I would never participate in Casual Friday. Okay. I, how about um, I don't like live music? I'm in Nashville right now, and I don't, I can't comprehend oh. that at all. <laughs> so I clumped, I clumped the ones together: Hoosiers, Rudy, and Rocky. I'm gonna do the same again. You already mentioned Harry Potter, but I was gonna clump that and say I don't understand the fascination with Harry Potter or Star Wars. Yeah, I've never seen Star Wars. You're not missing out. Um, okay. Um, I don't. I don't think that gymnastics should be paid. Really? Yeah. I feel like that needs more explanation, especially coming from a former that. student athlete. Let me caveat that with: I don't think they should be paid through the NCAA. I think if we're going to go down that rabbit hole, if you will, um, they should just be free agents and paid through. Whoever wants to pay them, it's almost like just letting the free market take over. And a requirement would be when you come to college, you uh, your intro classes as a student athlete would be uh, money management, classes about taxes and how to do them. You can have a, a, a CPA on staff, something like that. But these we're preparing student athletes and the ones that will really make money um, to be successful not necessarily get a ten million dollar contract three years from now and you know blow all the money because it didn't necessarily have the tools 
to be successful. So I don't think it should be through the NCAA because I just don't – who are you going to pay? How much are you going to pay? There's too many question marks. Just take the whole thing away and, you know, if Nike wants to come in and, and sponsor and sign Zion, let them. It's not going to be through the NCAA, though. So let me that's, follow. Let me follow up on that last part that you mentioned. Okay. Like you, you said, like how are you going to do it? Who are you going to pay? So as somebody who like you've you've played women's basketball, you have covered college football, you've covered men's basketball. How do you do? You think that when you say if they were to get paid scholarships, or whatever, do you think it should be based upon that individual itself, or do you think it should be like, for example, could a school pay one of their revenue sports student athletes, but not pay? Um, you know, if their rowing team didn't make money, do you think they could pay one? It's not fair. Okay. You can say that it's a, it's, it's a non-revenue sport, okay? But, listen, I was, in, I was a D2 athlete, a junior college athlete, and then when I got to a Power 5, and we got paid. I graduated with money in my bank account, okay? And I have several friends who are $100,000 in debt, so you can't tell me we're not getting money because we are, uh, but times change, and I think... I was in the car a couple years ago doing an event with Jay Williams. And he mentioned that his jersey, uh, one year when he was at Duke, made like over a million dollars. And he's like, that's not fair that I never saw that. And so, like, I'm like, okay, yeah, I agree. But then let, like, you're your own entity as a student athlete. So it's not necessarily, like, are you going to pay all the football players the same when the quarterback is mm-hmm. the star? Are you going to pay the, le- you know, the left guard, right guard? less more you know like there, those are a lot of questions are they going to miss blocks because they're getting less and they don't care for the quarterback there's a lot you know that that's a slippery slope in my opinion so i think that everyone should be their own private entity and we actually teach these kids what to do with money and we um educate them on it and then they become a, they are they're paying taxes on the money they learn how to become successful with money and that prepares them that's my opinion i'm just I hear, I hear, okay, let's play football players, but what about the women's basketball players? I know we don't make any money, but does that mean we don't get money? Right. You know what I mean? So, I'm open, but I don't think it should be through, you know, like the schools giving a stipend, because how can you tell me how much the quarterback's going to make versus the wide receiver, and that's not going to cause drama? Come on. Right, you get into a position where you're almost – ranking your student athletes i mean i don't know what florida has a lot, a lot of schools have you know between six and eight hundred student athletes you're, you're literally getting in a position where you're going to rank your student athletes like their q score like you're going to rank them their marketing q score how much how much they make for the university and 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 i don't i completely agree i don't think that's that healthy i don't think that you i don't know if you right when you said that i think that i was surprised i was really surprised i thought that was, that would kind of went from the norm of, of most student athletes but when you explain the opinion i don't think that you've that you've dug yourself um, that much of a hole there. All right. I'm going to, uh, one, one more here. I'm going to double down on the last part and just say, I don't like movies or TV shows that aren't real. Like if it's not based on a true story or couldn't be real. And there's really no flexibility for me on that. If the story isn't one that could happen in real life, I do not care whatsoever. Man, I think, I feel like we're a lot of like, this is a problem. I know. If you need to find somebody that that completely disagrees with me and loves Harry Potter and loves Star Wars <laughs> and loves Game of Thrones. It'd be a lot more fun. My, my last one would be that MJ is always and will always be the GOAT and he'll always be better than LeBron. I don't know if you're digging yourself a hole with that, though. I don't... Listen, if you talk to anyone, like, I'm 30 years old, 
you go like 27 and younger, it's LeBron. LeBron is the GOAT. That's a good point. So maybe we'll, you maybe we'll wait like 30, 40 years, and you will be in a hole by yourself. Yeah. Well, when I talk to student athletes, like when I cover games, and if we get into like who's your favorite NBA player and blah blah blah, LeBron James, Steph Curry, and I'm like, you know, I guess recently LeBron's kind of been rubbing me the wrong way when he showed up to the venue with like wine. What? So I just MJ the whole nine. All right, Steffi, I will let you go here um, as we part ways into our our isolation of unpopular opinions, I guess we could say. Hey, much appreciation to you for joining the podcast. Um, You know, thanks for your thoughts on that. Uh, I think that we all definitely learned a thing or two here. Um, But thank you. Have a great week. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Have a good time. Again, big thanks to Ben and Steffi for joining the High Motor Podcast. I'm going to be back next week uh, with a guest that I'm very confident you're going to enjoy. Really looking forward to that conversation. In the meantime, Check out all episodes of the High Motor Podcast on iTunes, Spreaker, Spotify. Please uh, leave a rating. Please leave a, re- leave a review if you have time. Please subscribe if you'd be so kind, if you have time. Always appreciate those. Again, you can find the podcast on Twitter at High Motor Pod. You can find me on Twitter at adowdy 88 Thank you for listening to this episode of the High Motor Podcast here on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. Oh